is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show and our favorite subject, American history. And by the way, all of our American history stories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Go to hillsdale.edu to sign up for their terrific and free online courses. Stephen Ambrose was one of America's leading biographers and historians. And at the core of his success was his belief that history was biography, history was about people. Ambrose passed in the year 2002, but his epic storytelling accounts can now be heard here in Our American Stories, thanks to those who run his estates. Here's Stephen Ambrose to tell us the short story from The Wild Blue, the men and boys who flew the B-24s. And he told this story to a riveted audience. Here's Stephen Ambrose. The B-24 was built like a 1930s Mac truck, except that it had an aluminum skin that could be cut with a knife. It could carry a heavy load far and fast, but it had no refinements. Steering the four-engine airplane was difficult and exhausting, as until late 1944, there was no power except the pilot's muscles. It had no windshield wipers, so the pilot had to stick his head out the side window to see during a rain. Breathing was possible only by wearing an oxygen mask above 10,000 feet in altitude. They were cold and clammy, smelling of rubber and sweat. There was no heat, despite temperatures that at 20,000 feet and higher got as low as 40 or even 50 degrees below zero. The wind blew through the airplane like fury, especially from the waste gunner's windows, and whenever the bomb bay doors were open. The oxygen mask often froze to the wearer's face. If the men at the waist touched their machine guns with bare hands, the skin froze to the metal. There were no bathrooms. To urinate, there were two small relief tubes, one forward and one aft, which were almost impossible to use without spilling because of the heavy layers of clothing the men wore. Plus which, the tubes were often clogged with frozen urine. Defecating could be done only in a receptacle lined with a wax paper bag. A man had to be desperate to use it because of the difficulty of removing enough clothing and exposing bare skin to the Arctic cold. The bags were dropped out the waste windows or through the open Bombay doors, and often men would write on them, take that, Hitler. <laughs> There were no kitchen facilities, no way to warm up food or coffee, but anyway, there was no food, unless a crew member had packed in a sandwich. With no pressurization, pockets of gas in a man's intestinal tract could swell like balloons and cause him to double over in pain. There was no aisle to walk down, only the eight-inch-wide catwalk, running beside the bombs and over the Bombay doors. That's what you use to move forward and aft. It had to be done with care, as the aluminum doors, which rolled up into the fuselage instead of swinging out on hinges, had only a 100-pound capacity. So if you slipped on that catwalk and fell, you were gone. 
The seats were not padded, could not be reclined, and were cramped into so small a space that a man had almost no chance to stretch and none whatsoever to relax. Absolutely nothing was done to make it comfortable for the pilot, the co-pilot, or the eight other men in the crew, even though most flights lasted for eight hours, sometimes 10, very occasionally more than 10, never less than six. The plane existed and was flown for one purpose only, to carry 500 or 1,000 pound bombs and drop them accurately over enemy targets. It was called a liberator. Consolidated along with the Ford Motor Company, Douglas Aircraft Company, and North American Aviation, together the liberator production pool made more than 18,300 liberators. That was 5,000 more than the total number of B-17s. The Liberator was not operational before World War II and was not operational after the war. All those B-24s were squished up by bulldozers because America needed the aluminum and we were going over to jet airplanes in any event. There's one still flying today. The number of people involved in making it in servicing it, and in flying the B-24 outnumbered those involved with any other airplane in any country at any time. There were more B-24s than any other American airplane ever built. It would be an exaggeration to say that the B-24 won the war for the Allies. But don't ask how they could have won it without it. The pilots and crews of the B-24s came from every state and territory in America. They were young, fit, eager. They were sons of workers, doctors, lawyers, farmers, businessmen, educators. A few were married, most were not. Some had an excellent education. Others were barely, if at all, out of high school. They were all volunteers. The U.S. Army Air Corps, after 1942, the U.S. Army Air Force, did not force anyone to fly. They made the choice. Most of them were between the ages of 2 and 10 in 1927, when Charles Lindbergh flew the Spirit of St. Louis from Long Island to Paris. For many boys, this was the first outside the family event to influence them. It fired their imagination. Like Lindbergh, they wanted to fly. And my goodness, what a story. What a story of a plane. And you're going to learn more about the boys who flew it in the next segment coming up. But my goodness, 18,300 liberators. You can't even imagine that one country could build that many planes. The arsenal of democracy on display. The fascists would soon learn about the American way of life and the free enterprise system and the American spirit. Let's continue where we last left off with Stephen Ambrose. In their teenage years, they drove Model T Fords or perhaps Model A's if they drove at all. Many of them were farm boys. They plowed behind mules or horses. They walked to school, one, two, sometimes even more miles. Most of them, including the city kids, were poor. If they were lucky enough to have jobs, they earned a dollar a day, sometimes less. 
They seldom traveled. Many had never been out of their home counties. Even most of the more fortunate had never been out of their home states. Of those who were best off, only a handful had ever been out of the country. Almost none of them had ever been up in an airplane. A surprising number had never seen an airplane. But they all wanted to fly. There were inducements beyond the adventure of the thing. Glamour, extra pay, the right to wear wings, quick promotions. You got to pick your service. No sleeping in a Navy bunk in a heaving ship or in a foxhole with someone shooting at you. They knew they would have to serve. Indeed, most of them wanted to serve. Their patriotism was beyond question. They wanted to be a part of smashing Hitler, Tojo, Mussolini, and their thugs. But they wanted to choose how they did it. Overwhelmingly, they wanted to fly. They wanted to get off the ground, be like a bird, see the country from up high, travel faster than anyone could do while attached to the earth. More than electric lights, more than steam engines, more than telephones, more than automobiles, more even than the printing press, the airplane separated past from future. It had freed mankind from the earth and opened the skies. They were astonishingly young. Many joined the Army Air Forces as teens. Some never got to be 20 years old before the war ended. Anyone over 25 was considered to be and was called an old man. In the 21st century, adults would hardly give such youngsters the key to the family car. But in the first half of the 1940s, the adults sent them out to play a critical role in saving the world. Most wanted to be fighter pilots, but only a relatively few attained that goal. Many became pilots or co-pilots on two or four engine bombers. The majority became crew members, serving as gunners or radio men or bombardiers or flight engineers or navigators. Never mind. They all wanted to fly, and they did. On the 50th anniversary of VE Day, I was with Joe Heller, who was a bombardier with the 12th Air Force, uh, flying out of Italy. And Heller said to me in the course of a conversation, I never had a bad officer. Astonished, I said, Joe, you're the man who created Major, Major, Major. <laughs> Colonel Cathcart, General Dreidel, Lieutenant Minderbender, and so many others. Everybody in the world knows these people. How can you tell me you never had a bad officer? They were all invention, he replied. Every single officer, from when I went into the service, to going over to Italy, to flying the missions, to when I got discharged, every one of them was good. In the course of interviewing George McGovern for this book, I told him what Heller had said to me. McGovern agreed immediately. That's my experience, he said. I was impressed by the pilots, the bombardiers, the navigators right across the board and with the operations officers and our group commander. I thought they were a superior bunch of men and I can honestly say I don't recall a bad officer. All through combat, I had confidence that our officers were doing the very best they knew how. If they made mistakes, they weren't foolish mistakes. Our officers were superb. <clears throat> Obviously, there were some weak, 
some poor, some inefficient or ignorant, and some absolutely terrible officers in the U.S. Armed Services in World War II. But if such men ever got into combat positions, the AAF, the Army, the Navy, or the Marines got them out at once. Men's lives depended on them after all. The combat officers knew it and acted accordingly. Ask the Germans who opposed them how good they were, or the Japanese. The American officers were superb. And that is the way it was in the 741st Squadron, 455th Bomb Group in Sherignola, Italy. Now, when men arrived in Sherignola in September of 1944, they saw tacked up in the briefing room words to the song, As Time Goes By, written by Anonymous. Now, I'm not a singer. But I can't resist this one. You must remember this. The flack can't always miss. Somebody's got to die. The odds are always too damned high as flack goes by. It's still the same old story. The eighth gets all the glory. Well, we're the ones who die. The odds are always too damned high as flack goes by. <laughs> I want to talk for just a minute about the strategic bombing campaign. Critics have said that all of that productive power that went into it, 18,300 of those planes, all of the AAF's teaching uh, effort would have been much better spent if they had trained these guys as infantrymen or as sailors. And we could have won the war sooner because they never hit what they were what they were dropping at, ever. And it was just a waste. That's not true. They did hit what they were aiming at far more often than not. And they paralyzed the German army. Hitting rail yards, marshalling yards, railroad bridges brought the German train traffic to a halt. Bombing the refineries, Ploesti and the others, was so successful that in April 1944, when the Germans had all the gasoline they needed, 100%, less than a year later, the late winter of 1944-45, they were down to 1%. That meant they couldn't train tank crews. They couldn't even drive tanks on the battlefield. They had to dig their tanks in, make them into fixed field fortifications. This is Germany, the home of Mercedes, and so many other manufacturers of automobiles and trucks. They had no gasoline. They were reduced to being a horse-drawn army trying to fight a 20th century war. And that was thanks to the strategic bombing campaign. At the end of my interview with McGovern that had lasted for weeks, 
uh, I asked him to sum up his war experience. With his answer, he spoke for every airman, every GI, every sailor, every Marine, every Coast Guard man of World War II. Piloting a B-24 in combat with nine other guys took every ounce of physical energy I had, every bit of mental abilities I had, and literally every shred of spiritual resource that I had. I can't recall any other stage of my life, unless it was the closing days of the 72 presidential campaign that so demanded everything I had. I gave that World War II effort everything, except my life itself. And I was ready to give my life. It literally exhausted every resource of mind and body and spirit that I had. I replied, Thanks for what you did to help win the victory and thus save the world. I always say something like that at the end of every interview with a veteran of the war, because it is the truth. And a special thanks to Stephen Ambrose's estate, and a special thanks to Hillsdale College, where you can go to study all the things that are beautiful in life, all the things that matter in life. Go to hillsdale.edu to sign up for their free and terrific online courses. And my goodness, what a thing to say that Joseph Heller said, I never had a bad officer. And George McGovern, who was a senator and who would run for president of the United States, said the same. He seconded that. And my goodness, what an accomplishment. Germany in April of 44 had 100% of the gas they needed. One year later, down to 1%. They couldn't even train their tank crews. Germany, the home of Mercedes, had no gas and were reduced to being a horse-drawn army all because of the manufacturing might of this great country and the volunteers who commandeered these B-24s. The story of the liberator, Stephen Ambrose, telling it like no one else can, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, and we love telling stories about history. And up next, well, a story about a young lady named Natalie Miller. Every year, more than 500,000 middle and high school students participate in something called National History Day, a worldwide competition where students create an original history project of their choice. Today, we bring you Natalie Miller, As a 16-year-old sophomore, she placed first in the high school paper competition. Here's Natalie telling us about National History Day and her winning paper. So my name is Natalie Miller. I'm from Duluth, Minnesota. Minnesota has one of the stronger um, History Day programs in the United States. We have like 35,000 kids compete every year, so it's just kind of cool that I made it to nationals at all. I don't know why I really like history. I Like, I, a lot of my friends, they don't really like history, and I do. But it's like a story, you know, but it actually happened. So... In seventh grade, I did a project on Nellie Bly and her investigations at an insane asylum. In eighth grade, I did a project on the White Rose, which was a student-led resistance group in Nazi Germany. 
In ninth grade, I did a project on Alan Turing and his decryption of the German Enigma. And this year, obviously, I did a project on Title IX, but I twisted it so it was more centered on education and faculty hiring instead of what it's typically known for, which is equity in sports. When I talk to my History Day advisor, she's like, oh yeah, women in sports. I talk to my mom, she's like, oh yeah, women in sports. So it was really interesting to twist a topic like that, and I think that really helped my paper stand out. So in 1969, Bernice Sandler, she had just finished her PhD at the University of Maryland, and she applied for a job, and there were several job openings in the department that she was applying for. She was actually rejected a total of three times for different applications, and one of her colleagues told her basically that she had come on too strong for a woman. So afterwards, Bernie Sandler's husband actually called the incident sex discrimination, because Bernie Sandler had been really uncertain at the time. She was like, did I do something wrong? Why didn't I get this job? But it wasn't her fault. It was just that the University of Maryland had sexist employment practices. So afterwards, she ended up getting into contact with this one man at, um, let me look, I have my paper right in front of me. The Office of Federal Contract Compliance of the Department of Labor. And he basically told her, yeah, I know that this is messed up because there was an issue with the Civil Rights Act. There had been this amendment added to it by President Lyndon Johnson. And basically what was happening at these universities was illegal now. And nobody really knew that. The universities were ignoring this. So afterwards, Bernie Sandler began filing all of these class action complaints. And eventually that got the attention of the House of Representatives, specifically a member named Edith Green, who is really pro-women's rights. And afterwards, it was just like Title IX became something that was in the works in the House of Representatives, and it eventually got passed two years later, and it got through the Senate, and then it got signed. Something else that I didn't include in my paper that I did read about was Bernie Sandler, she wanted to lobby for Title IX, like she wanted everyone to know about it, but Edith Green ended up saying, no, we need to keep this quiet. We want this to pass without a lot of recognition or anything, because if it gets recognized, there's going to be a lot of heat taken to the law. People are going to start fighting against it if people know about it. So they did try to keep it pretty quiet, and I guess that ended up working, because once it was passed, then people were like, oh, this is a problem. <laughs> so afterwards, women had a legal means to sue colleges and universities to get what they wanted, and it wasn't like, oh, you're a woman, you can't have this job. Now they had a way to protect themselves from that. So, I don't know who used the term legislative equivalent of a Swiss army knife, but I do think that it's very true. It was created to address injustices with hiring a female faculty. Soon after, it was focused on admissions, so then women could attend college at the same rate that men could. And then, I kind of describe it as uh, something that came in waves, because after that, then it started focusing with sports, and then after that, sexual harassment. But I think that Bernie Sandler really does need more recognition. She's called the godmother of Title IX. So I really enjoy telling her story because I don't think that it's been told enough. 
It's been a dream of mine to go to National History Day for so long, and when I finally went, I was like, oh, nothing's gonna happen. This is my first year competing. So it was really crazy. I ended up winning, which I was really not expecting, but it was really rewarding at the same time because, uh, yeah, I'd worked really hard. <laughs> we, My family was thinking about going on a vacation this February somewhere, but I was like, nope, I have to write my history day paper. I can't go anywhere. And then I also, uh, for winning first place at nationals, I get $1,000. And for being a first place senior individual, I go to the National History Academy next summer for five weeks. I think that the whole experience of History Day is just, it's really great for like college prep and life prep in general. Just the whole the research process, you talk to different people for interviews, that builds interview skills, and then you compete. I just think that the whole experience is really valuable to anyone in general. You get so much better at so many different things when you do History Day, and it is a lot of work. It's a year-long project. I used over 50 sources between books and interviews and Congress records. It's a lot of work, but I really do feel the payoff every year, especially this year, so I don't think that you can go wrong by doing this. And you've been listening to Natalie Miller, who is a 16-year-old sophomore placed first in the high school paper competition uh, for National History Day. And by the way, you can learn more about National History Day and being a part of it at nhd.org. And we thank our friends in the Washington, D.C. area for putting us on to this. And you know who you are. And by the way, I love what she said about history. I don't know why I like history. It's a story that actually happened. By the way, David McCullough talks about this all the time. You know, when the guys who were fighting the Revolutionary War, they didn't know how it was going to end. And when they were writing the Constitution, they didn't know what was going to happen. And they weren't walking out and about and thinking they were know-it-alls. And that is what's beautiful about telling the story of this country. And what an important story she just told about sexism. And then women entering the workplace, which was fought and resisted at every turn. And the discrimination women faced. And by the way, congratulations. And to, to Title IX's credit, we're having almost 60% of college graduates in the year 2022 being women. And so a great success, Title IX. Some of us are now wondering about how we help our boys. And that's an important issue here on this show as well. Natalie Miller's story, National History Day, celebrated here on Our American Stories. officer going to Chicago from Oak Ridge never knew where the briefcase was going. And the other officer never knew where the briefcase came from. I would go out for a run and I was yelling at God. If you can't tell Bray that I love him, that I'm sorry, and that I miss him, then if you can't give that to me, I want nothing from you. Nothing to do with you, God. 
I will never forget that man's generosity who offered his temporary home, part of his sustenance, a game to play, his creative adaptation of life, and his daily appreciation of the moment. This is Lee Habib with Our American Stories, and what you were listening to were snippets from some of the stories from our own listeners, from you. Send us your stories at ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. This is Our American Stories, and this is the story of how a Florida couple kept seven siblings, four brothers and three sisters, ages 12 to 4, together that were separated throughout four different foster homes. Sophia and Deshaun Olds, both 33, got married in 2004, and they admit that as newlyweds, they were too busy with schooling and serving in the military, both veterans who served overseas in Iraq, to think about starting a family. This is the story of how one childless married couple of 13 years became a family of nine, literally, overnight. We thought like we would never ever get adopted, but I thought this was like a really good blessing for us. I never actually had a mom and a dad under the same roof. But it feels great. It's like they both like a half of something, like peanut butter and jelly. Hello, I'm Deshaun Oles. And I'm Sophia Oles. And we would like to tell you about our process, our story of adoption. We have always wanted to adopt. We've been married for about 13 years now. And it had always been in our plans to adopt and to have biological children. We actually took the classes in 2006 and were preparing to adopt a child. However, we couldn't agree upon an age. So we postponed it, got busy with life, enjoying life, continuing in our careers in college, military, us traveling. We just were enjoying life. We were having a wonderful time together with family, with friends. I know a lot of people probably wonder and question why is it that they don't have biological children? It just never happened for us. In 2013, I took a pregnancy test and the test came back positive. And it was the scariest thing to me. I cried and I cried and I cried because I wasn't ready to be a mother. I know that being a mother is one of the most important jobs, number one, in this world. And I guess I felt like I wasn't ready to do that, that I couldn't be that yet. And a couple days later, um, I miscarried. It was confirmed by the doctors, and I had miscarried. And again, I felt another form of sadness because, you know, a child that we would have, we no longer would have. Even though we were early on in our pregnancy, it was it was still devastating for me. No, I hadn't felt the baby kick. I hadn't felt the baby move, but it was devastating. But again, we continued life. 
Also, we are very active in our local church. So we were active in, my husband is the youth pastor, children's church, ages what? Four to 12. Always been a part of my life just to help out with children in the church. And I guess one thing we always did is that every time we gave our offering, we had on the back of it, um, adopt a child on there. And then it was just no surprise that this story came out the day after Thanksgiving. And the day after Thanksgiving, what most people are doing is shopping. How we are shopping and we saw the story on Facebook, these seven children who needed a home. It was home for the holidays. And one scripture just came to my mind is that in my father's house there's many rooms and I go prepare a place for you. And in the Lord's Prayer, we do things on earth as it is in heaven. So we had a space to truly be, to open our home for seven children. And we knew that we had everything that these children needed. They needed a mother, a father. They needed stability, structure, discipline. With us having military, they needed love. They needed care. My husband being a teacher, me and being in social work, having those skills, the spiritual background, everything. We were just putting our whole hope and our whole trust and all of our, our dreams and our ambitions and our life in his hands. We were surrendering all when we decided to adopt our seven children. Yeah. And once we put our faith out there, it's amazing how God works it out. These students I've been serving at Rutherford High School, their parents came together and said, what can we do? What can we do? They did everything from bringing furniture to build bunk beds to donate sports equipment to donate groceries. One parent is a farmer and truly just slaughtered a pig for us. So we have sausage, bacon, and everything else. And also, our families, a day hasn't gone by that they haven't asked us or given to us, whether it be snacks for the children to take to school, whether it be cooking up a big pot of llama beans, helping out, cooking food, getting the children off the bus when we both have to work, picking oranges, whatever it is, any extra that they have had, anything that they could give, whether it be $5, we have had that outpouring from our families from both sides. We have had that from complete strangers that live thousands and thousands of miles away. It has been no stress, no struggle at all. And I do believe that that goes back to us doing the will of God to help build his kingdom, to provide a home for, as the Bible calls them, orphans. You know, that is something that the Bible states we should do. Yes, in James 127, it says true religion is to take care of the orphans. And we all know that it is more blessed to give than to receive if we were allowed to adopt these seven children, we would do it. We would work every day of our lives to make sure that they are cared for. And I think what's most important too is for them to see and to have an example of what it's like to have a father who is the head of the household, who has a strong faith and belief in God and who can teach them, who can lead the family. And I know that they enjoy that. I know that they feel privileged and proud to know that their dad is up there teaching them. You can see the smiles on their face and they enjoy talking about it afterwards. 
they asked lots of questions um so that whole aspect has been wonderful to have him up front teaching our children um, about God, about the things that they should do in life to be saints, to be good children, to grow up, to be successful. Yep. And I like to just thank for my spiritual fathers because I do not have a biological father involved in my life, but my spiritual fathers from my pastors to different men in my church who helped show me the way right there. And I could just use that to impart not only to my children, but all the children I minister to on a weekly basis. So I think it's important to know that in this story of adoption, I am not called to be a minister, to be behind a pulpit, to preach at a church, to be a pastor. But I know that this is my calling that God has placed in my life and I am embracing it, I am enjoying it. And that's why I can say that I am not stressed because it is something that we are doing that we are supposed to do. So it makes it so much easier. Does it require a lot from us? A lot of time, um, a lot of correction that we have to do, but it is also worth it, every part of it. This is what we're supposed to do in life. These seven children are our calling to be their mother and their father. And we take it just as serious as if um, it was a pastor over a church or a CEO over a business. This is us, a manager over a team. This is us. This is what we are called to do. And we give him all the praise, the glory, the honor for it, because without him, we would not be able to do this. And we are doing it. And that is our story. And what a story it was. And thanks, Greg, for doing that. And thank you, Sophia and Deshaun Olds, for recording that. And for doing what you did. It's an inspiration. People listening who are thinking about it, well, just do it. Fill that house up with love. They immediately adopted seven children who needed a home. And one's a teacher. They didn't have the means, but they did it anyway. And look at the fruits of their love. And it was their faith, of course, the fruits of their faith. They just did it. They answered to a higher power. And by the way, NBC's Today Show, ABC News, Inside Edition, Miami Herald, Parents.com, and People, they all did this story but they somehow managed to leave the faith walk of this couple out of the story. And just a few things they said, and it was Sophia who said this, once you put your faith out there, it's amazing how God works it out. And in came the food, and in came the help from the family members, in came all that love. True religion is to take care of the orphans. And if more Christians in this great country did what this young couple did, my goodness, we could solve a lot of problems in our country. A lot of homeless problems, a lot of kids without parents. We'll bring these adoption stories to you because they're beautiful, and hopefully they have some imitative power. That is, some of you listening may just decide to fill your home with some kids in need. This is Our American Story, Sophia and Deshaun Olds' story. And those seven kids they adopted, their stories too.
is our American story. Some of our very favorite stories have come from authors, folks who've spent years or often a lifetime studying or living a topic. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear author Neil Gabler's talk about Barbara Streisand, his terrific book about her life, a Brooklyn lady, by the way. Terry Teachout, his remarkable piece on Louis Armstrong and his book on Louis Armstrong. We did that in celebration of Armstrong's life. And Richard Zack's terrific new book on Mark Twain and how he lost all of his money and got some of it back and then lost it all over again. And today we have a very special author joining us, one who has lived a life worthy of several books. For 18 years, Charles Campisi was chief of the New York Police Department's Internal Affairs Bureau, the largest anti-corruption unit in the world. He held that position longer than anyone else, and as you can imagine, the man has some stories. He is the author of Blue on Blue, an insider's story of good cops catching bad cops. And he joins us now. Thanks for joining us, Charles. It is certainly my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Charles, before we get into the book, we like to start things where we always start them here in Our American Stories with where you were born, your parents, and what you did as a kid that led you to be a cop and a cop that ultimately chased bad cops. Um, what led you to become the man you were, decisions and forces in your life when you were young? Well, really, it starts off when I was about five years old. I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, my parents were also born and raised in Brooklyn. My grandparents uh, immigrated from, uh, from Italy you know, back in the 1890s. And at that time, I had an aunt who lived two doorways away from the old 83rd precinct, which was on Wilson Avenue in, uh, in Brooklyn. And as a kid, five years old, we visited. I would be there, and I would be uh, playing in the streets, as we did back then in the, uh, the mid to late 50s. And I got to meet and talk to and admire some of the police officers that worked basically right next door. And they were very nice people. They were people that I wanted to emulate. Uh, they would talk to me. As a matter of fact, one officer, an officer, by, his name was Mike. I don't know his last name. I don't think I ever did know his last name. Would let me walk down the street with him. There was even a time he put his police hat on my head and said, come on, you're with me, partner. And it was a great experience. And from that very early age, I knew I wanted to be like them. I knew I wanted to be someone who was counted on to help and someone who would be uh, available when people needed them. And that's really how it all starts. And that's how it starts for so many of us. You know, how uh, we behave as adults in our professions can actually impact whether young people choose that profession. And what a great illustration of that, uh, Charles. That if, if you had had a different experience with a police officer or two, you may have had a fundamentally different life. Absolutely. I, I might have taken an entirely different path. It's so true. And then talk about Brooklyn at the time, been, during your formative years, and talk about this place, Brooklyn. It's one of the more remarkable parts of New York City. It's the biggest borough. It has the most population. And everybody who goes to New York City always goes to Manhattan. But I've always submitted the most interesting parts of New York are in, in the boroughs where the folks live who actually service and take care of that big island called Manhattan Island. Talk about Brooklyn. Well, Brooklyn was a great place to grow up. Uh, we lived in a multicultural neighborhood. We all got along. There were people on my, on my block where I lived from all over the world, immigrant families, uh, new people coming into the country. And we were all friends. We all played, and we could play in the street. There was no worries about uh, having a child on the street alone. And we played all the games that, that kids played in the mid-50s and, and early 60s. We played stickball in the middle of the street, and we used to use the sewers as different bases, a home plate, second base, 
Uh, we played stoop ball. We played all the things that, that, that Brooklyn basically came to be known for. And it was a wonderful place to go up. We had the Dodgers. We had uh, everything you could want was there in Brooklyn. You know, it's a ma- remarkable. As Barbara Streisand grew up in Brooklyn, as you know. Yes. And, and so did Neil Diamond. But what people didn't know until I did that book was that Neil Diamond and Barbara Streisand were at Erasmus High School at the exact same time, in the exact same class. That's didn't, crazy. didn't know each other. And they didn't know each other, because that's how big Erasmus High School is. And by the way, Brooklyn has a population of what, Charles? You know, four million people? Yes. And a matter of fact, there was a, a television show uh, called Welcome Back, Carter that portrayed Brooklyn as the third largest city in America if it was taken out of, uh, out of the Manhattan, out of the New York City five boroughs. It would be the third largest city in America. And I remember some of the cities, especially Philadelphia, not quite liking that. But, right. uh, yes, it's a big place, and it could be one of the largest cities in America. Indeed, and I've always told friends I grew up in northern Jersey, and that was back in the day when your parents would let you take your bicycle, go over the George Washington Bridge, strap your bike to a pole, get on a subway, and go anywhere you want, just be back by the time the sun sets. And a group of us would go out, and we would actually take trains all the way to Coney Island. And I had one friend who grew up in Brooklyn, and he had us bicycle from the Brooklyn Bridge straight down Ocean Parkway, all the way to Coney Island, and stopping all the way for all the different neighborhoods, from the Orthodox Jewish neighborhoods all the way to Little Odessa and Brighton Beach, which is all Russian. And it's truly a miracle, Brooklyn. I I urge all people who are listening, take an extra day or two when you go to New York City and get out of the city and go see the boroughs and go see life as it's lived outside of that, that big, that big, big uh, Manhattan Island. Uh, Charles, so you, 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 you grow up, you come out, you go out of high school. Talk about your formative and early years uh, at the New York City Police Department. Okay, I've, I joined the police department. I'm selected in 1973. It was a long process because while I was in high school, I had applied to become a police officer. And you go through a variety of uh, testing, uh, physical testing, medical testing, psychological testing, background. And when I left high school, I entered college. And, again, I went to college in Long Island University, the Brooklyn Center, downtown Brooklyn, right in the heart of Brooklyn. And, you know, basically it was a a tough process to become a police officer. So when I first get there, uh, you go into the academy. Academy is very, you know, very rigorous. Uh, physical training, which wasn't a problem for me at the time, you know, 21 years old, uh, you know, playing all kinds of sports. I mean, I love sports. I, I never was really any good in any of the sports, but I loved to play, and that was all that was important, that I, I got a chance to play. And uh, going into the police department, we were coming in right after the NAP Commission. NAP Commission was, uh, people might remember from Frank Serpico, he was the impetus behind the NAP Commission and, and his testimony and uh, his courage to come forward and try to stop corruption is uh, uh, well documented, not only in books, but you know, Al Pacino played him in the, in the movie. So, uh, You know, coming- Charles, hold that thought for a second. We're going to come in after a commercial break and pick it up after the Serpico uh, moment because it's such a critical moment in the life of the New York City Police Department. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Charles Campisi, author of Blue on Blue, an insider's story of good cops catching bad cops. More of Charles's story here on Our American Stories.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Charles Campisi, author of Blue on Blue, an insider story of good cops catching bad cops. And Charles, we were just talking about, and by the way, if you've not seen the movie Serpico, uh, which stars Al Pacino, it's a very young Al Pacino, by the way, and it was a book that spawned this thing called the Knapp Commission, which if you lived in the New York area, and even if you didn't, but studied law enforcement, it was one of the seminal sea changes in how to think about, you know, thinking about corruption in large city police departments in particular. Um, talk about that moment in the history of the NYPD, particularly as this film really got out there, because it had to change the perception of what people thought the average cop was up to day to day. Well, you're absolutely right, because what we found in, uh, from the Knapp Commission, from, uh, from Frank Serpico's story and then from the, uh, uh, the movie, was that corruption was very systemic in the New York City Police Department. By that, I mean it flowed from the lowest levels all the way up to the top echelon of the police department. And it flowed horizontally. It flowed vertically. It seemed that everybody, and it really wasn't everybody, but they made it seem like everybody had their hand in the till. But I have to tell you that it was probably most of the people who had their hand in the till. And although when Knapp was finished with his investigation, he could only prove criminality on uh, the highest rank he was able to prove criminality was at the lieutenant's rank. But there was so much evidence that showed it went much, much higher to, uh, to the other ranks within the police department. So when the Knapp Commission finishes their investigation, and Serpico's story is, is well told, uh, major changes within the police department. They moved people and dismissed people and fired people, and at the, some of the lower levels arrested people and moved them out of the police department. So they changed the police department completely. Now, I'm entering the police department during this, uh, this change where you saw you know, chiefs and inspectors, they're high-level people being forced out, being forced to retire, some of them being fired, some of them being prosecuted. Um, so it really changes everything. And systemic corruption, based upon the NAP Commission results, basically doesn't exist anymore in the police department of the NYPD. And we can thank Frank Serpico and the NAP Commission for that. So what they do is they put in place a division. They call it the Internal Affairs Division, and their job is to root out corruption. And what they do is very, very good at stopping this systemic corruption. But they remain stagnant over the years. They don't grow See, corrupt people and corruption will find a way. It's like water. It'll find its own level. Yep. And what the old Internal Affairs Division didn't do was grow, was didn't learn from, uh, from their mistakes, did not uh, adapt to changing corruption patterns, and a new type of corruption that we termed opportunistic corruption was allowed to grow and grow. Now, opportunistic corruption comes at a time when the crack epidemic is flourishing throughout all major cities, especially New York. And now we have something new that they didn't necessarily have uh, pre-nap days. Pre-nap was mostly gambling, was mostly prostitution, the vices. Yep. They were uh, profiting from looking the other way, not necessarily participating in the action, but allowing it to flourish. Now this new corruption where they're taking advantage of situations, taking advantage of the large sums of money available through uh, narcotics and narcotics enforcement, 
becomes much more difficult to, to uh, detect using the old methods. And the old IAD did not grow. They did not evolve while corruption mutated. Well, and that's the story of any company, any life, any church, any organization. Good people just can't manage in their own minds to wrap their heads around how an evil person will do anything, avoid anything to just do bad stuff. So it's no easy job to be uh, running or working with internal affairs for that reason alone. But also, when you first joined internal affairs and you were the chief of the NYPD's Eternal Affairs Bureau as, as we ended. You, what was it like then when you first started? What, what did the cops think of internal affairs? I mean, we get that uh, opinion from TV shows that people think that the guys in internal affairs are bad guys because they're going after cops. But I would, I would guess that good cops were rooting for internal affairs to get the bad cops out of their midst. Well, in the, in the very beginning, when we first started... We looked at the Internal Affairs Division, and we, we wanted to find out what was the opinion of uh, who was the Internal Affairs investigator that the cops identified with. And we did focus groups, and we brought in oh, a couple of hundred police officers, all different ranks, all different assignments, uh, all different levels, they, you know, young officers, more senior officers. And we asked them, who is the typical Internal Affairs investigator, and what do they do? Now, their opinions their beliefs, whether it's true or not, is what they believed, is that was reality to them. And their opinion was that if you were in internal affairs back then, when I first started in internal affairs, 1993, that you were one of three people. You were either a coward because you were afraid to be a real cop and you went and hid in internal affairs rather than be on the street and be on patrol. Number two, you were a thief. You were a rat. You got caught dirty. And in exchange for some type of leniency, you agreed to go to internal affairs and rat out other cops. Or you were a zealot, someone who thinks they're going to change the world uh, by their mere presence, by their mere force of will, the world will be a better place. Now, again, I don't know if that was true or not, but that was their belief. And that was one of the first hurdles we had to overcome. Because my own experience with the internal affairs was not very positive. Now that, again, we're talking about the old internal affairs division. And it's something I call the great Christmas tree caper of 1978, where I was involved in an incident where there was a major demonstration down by City Hall. And I had recovered through a cab driver, a briefcase belonging to a businesswoman. And we did everything we needed to do. We properly vouched it. We, we uh, notified the, the woman to come pick up her bag. We did everything we needed to do. It was done under supervision. And uh, it was textbook because at the time I was studying hard for the sergeant's exam. And I kind of knew the procedures as well as I, I ever would know them. So a couple of, this is just before Christmas. So about a week after Christmas, I get a notice to report to the old internal affairs division and bring my notes and my memo book, as we called it, uh, for a certain date. So I looked at that date, and I saw that that was the day that I recovered the, uh, the briefcase. There was no money in it. There was a credit card in it. But, you know, papers, no, business papers that were valuable to the company and valuable to the woman, obviously. So they asked me, uh, point blank, did I steal a Christmas tree from a Christmas tree lot that was a couple of miles away? And I said, no, I never stole a Christmas tree, and I can prove my location. They didn't want to hear it. They were very quick, okay, we're just going to dismiss you. You go away, and this is going to stay on your record. 
that you were accused of stealing a Christmas tree. And it wasn't just me. There was uh, numerous officers. Uh, we were all riding three-wheel scooters at the time, and they couldn't get the full number because the Christmas tree branch was obscuring part of it. So anybody who was working that day in the vicinity was called down to the old Internal Affairs Division. And I argued with them, proving that I was nowhere near the location, and I had two supervisors who could verify that I was miles away, and they just didn't care. They were just quick, and I want to close the case, go away, you know, and that's the impression you get. These guys aren't good investigators. These guys aren't here to help me. These guys are just here to, you know, do their job and quick go home at the end of the night and not worry about anybody else. So coming in with that understanding that they weren't here to help me, they were here just to be expeditious. Uh, and knowing that the general impression is that they're cowards and thieves and zealots, we had to change that image. We had to change that perspective. So the only way to do that is no longer allow anybody to volunteer to come into internal affairs. I certainly didn't volunteer to go. I was drafted by then Commissioner Kelly, who said to me, we're having problems, because there was a new commission that came in 20 years later, the Marlin Commission, yep. that had to do with a man named Michael Dowd. And people in the press uh, had Michael Dowd labeled as the dirtiest cop alive. And Michael was stealing drugs and beating people and stealing money and, and even doing it off-duty, coming in on his days off because he could make lots of money. Yep. And the old IAD, with their old tactics, let Michael go on for six, seven, possibly eight years doing what he was doing, and they never got a chance to catch him because they weren't doing it right. So coming to, with that in my background, we said no more volunteers into internal affairs. We have to select people, we have to draft people, and we have to draft the people who are the most knowledgeable, the best investigators, the people with pristine records, the people with good reputations, the people the other cops admire, the other cops look up to. And that's so smart, Charles, and you changed the culture overnight. We're talking to Charles Campisi, author of Blue on Blue, an insider story of good cops catching bad cops. More of Charles's story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. We continue our conversation with Charles Campisi, author of Blue on Blue, an insider's story of good cops catching bad cops. And going away with this volunteer system and making it be that the only way you can get in internal affairs was to be chosen, I would assume almost overnight this changes the nature and character of internal affairs itself, Charles. Well, it helped so much because within a short period of time, we started to do additional focus groups, you know, different people, but the same uh, basic backgrounds, cops from all different ranks and all. And amazingly, they weren't telling us about cowards and thieves and zealots. They were talking about, you took our best sergeant, you took our best lieutenant, you know, she was the best boss we ever had, and you stole her from us. And it no longer was thieves and, and cowards, it was 
The best people go to IAB. That's not fair. They shouldn't go to IAB. They should be allowed to stay where they are. But IAB being such an important part of policing, and I used to tell my, my peers and my supervisors, you know, crime reduction in New York is great. We're, we're breaking all records. But I'll tell you, we have another big scandal, and all our, our, our accolades are going down the drain. Yep. We have to prove to the people that we could police ourselves. We can prove to the people that we're going to get rid of those bad cops. And what we found over our years is the overwhelming majority of cops, men and women, hardworking, dedicated people, come to work, do a very difficult job. But there's that small percentage, that half a percent, if you would, maybe one percent, that will steal the headlines every day away from the good cops. And in the New York City Police Department, where you have over 50,000 employees, 37,000 sworn officers, traffic agents, school safety agents, uh, assorted staff and computer analysts, that 50,000 people, if you're looking at 1%, you're looking at 500 people that you've got to worry about. And so that 1%, I think this is another point that I think is worth illustrating, is if you got 1%, then you've got quite a number of people out there doing bad things. But it's how long they can do bad things and to how many people. I, I had a lot of experience in Newark. I played a lot of basketball there. I had some friends there. And there was one cop that everybody knew was bad and everybody was afraid of for good reason. And he carried on on the streets for a decade without recourse till he was finally cuffed and stuffed but the what the harm he did because everybody assumed everybody knew but but everybody didn't know it it turns out he was a rogue guy who just he got away with things for far too long and the impact and the damage it did to the opinion of people on the street as it relates to the Newark Police Department i say it, it they for people who encountered that guy they still haven't recovered charles I agree with you, absolutely, that one person can affect the image of the entire force because that's the one that's going to be the, the most cognizant in your mind, and that's the one when he or she gets caught, makes the front page. And all the good that you've done gets washed away with that corruption scandal. Yep, and let's talk about a story I remember from back uh, when you were there, and that's the Abner Lawima case. And this is a difficult, difficult story. Take your time, walk us through it. Okay, that's one of the most horrific stories in the annals of policing anywhere. And it all starts on a Saturday night in Brooklyn in uh, a club called Club Rendezvous. There's a big party, mostly Haitian Americans attending this party, many Haitian Americans living in the community. There's a big fight that erupts inside the party. It spills out into the street. The police are called, and the police send everybody on their way. There were no arrests made at that time. And while they're breaking up this large disturbance, there's a police officer named Justin Volpe who's standing in front of Club Rendezvous, and a man runs by and sucker punches Justin, knocks him to the ground, and runs away. Justin is now infuriated, and he gets in the car with other officers, and they start to look for the man who sucker punched Justin. They spot Mr. Abner Luima who is not the man who punched Justin. But they believe it's him. They grab him, they arrest him, they handcuff him, they put him in the back of a police car, and they beat him up. They hit him several times as they're driving from the scene back to the 70th precinct, 70 precinct in, uh, in Brooklyn. As they're taking him two or three times, they stop, they punch him, they smack him, they hit him. 
they then bring him into the station house. They bring him before the desk officer, and they explain that this man sucker punched Justin Volpe. We take his belt away, his shoelaces, and the things they normally would do. So when they put him in a cell, he can't hurt himself. But they do something different. They start to walk him back to where the cell area is so that they can start the booking process. As they're walking him, because his, his pants were kind of baggy, they didn't fit well, uh, and they had taken his belt, his pants start to fall down to his ankles. And he's kind of shuffling now, more like a duck walk. And there are officers who are working there. Now, this is on a midnight tour, uh, so it happens someplace about 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. They see him being walked back, Mr. Louima, they see him being walked back to the cell area, and nobody thinks much of it. The cell area is to the left of the hallway, but they don't take Mr. Louima to the cell area. They take him to the right, which is a, a, a bathroom that's used by the officers. It's not a public bathroom. It's an a, 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 a office bathroom. So they take him in the bathroom, and then they proceed to beat him again. One officer is in there is beating him again, Justin Volpe. Then, for whatever reason, and this is where my mind can't, can't grasp this, he takes a broomstick, and Justin Volpe breaks the broomstick, and then he rams it into the rectum of Mr. Louima. I can't imagine the pain that this man went through. Uh, a second officer is reported to have entered the bathroom while Justin is doing this to Mr. Louima. He then, is, he then stops after a period of time. He takes Mr. Louima, puts him in the cell, and he waves the stick with feces and blood and, and who knows what. He's waving it around uh, as a prize, as a, some sort of trophy. In the meantime, Mr. Louima is in the cell in excruciating pain. The next morning when the next tour comes on, Mr. Louima is very, very sick. He's in pain. They decide, the new officers decide, wait, this man's sick. We've got to get him to a hospital. And they take him to Coney Island Hospital, where he tells a nurse about being sodomized with a stick by these police officers. What the nurse does is she makes a mistake, and then the Internal Affairs Bureau, my investigator, compounds that mistake. She calls Internal Affairs, and she tells Internal Affairs her husband was assaulted. Now, the officer who takes the call I mean, you talk about bad luck for, for all of us. It's his first day at the command center taking phone calls, very first day. He makes a rookie mistake. Well, he is a rookie. When she cannot pronounce Mr. Louima's name, and she mispronounces it two or three times, he says to her, lady, this is your husband? Don't you know his name? Can't you pronounce it? Could you spell it for us? And she says, but she didn't want to really get involved. She wanted to just pass off the information. She says, let me call you back. And then here's where, where my investigator makes the mistake. He says, okay, lady, call me back. You never let the person off the phone. Right. You get as much information as you can. You start a preliminary investigation. You notify your supervisors. You do all of those things. He didn't do any of those things. So a little later in the day, we could have, had, we could have been involved in the case a little earlier if he would have handled the call right. Now, naturally, hold on, Charles, hold that thought right there because we're coming up upon a break. And we want to hear the rest, rest of this story, the Abner Louima story, as horrifying a story as there was in the history of the New York Police Department and the man who was in charge of internal affairs or was working at internal affairs at the time, 
Charles Campisi, his book, Blue on Blue, an insider's story of good cops catching bad cops. More after these messages. Our American Stories, we continue our final segment in this hour-long conversation with Charles Campisi, author of Blue on Blue, an insider's story of good cops catching bad cops. And we were talking about the Abner Loima case and the unfortunate luck of internal affairs getting the call and a rookie answering that call. And what he did, not getting that person's information, letting that call disappear was something, again, that someone more trained, Charles, wouldn't have done. But this was really bad news for internal affairs, wasn't it? Absolutely. It was probably, I was there in internal affairs for 21 years, the chief for 17 and a half years. This was the worst mistake you could make under the worst case that there could be. And so what happens next? Uh, how does the media get a hold of this? How do okay, people that, find that's, out, that's, and what happens? That's, that's an excellent point, because the media doesn't get a hold of this until Wednesday. Now, this is a Sunday morning when we get the phone call, and they drop the call. We get a second call about a man being in the hospital, injured, seriously injured. That call, a couple of hours later, is handled absolutely correctly. We, get a, we dispatch investigative teams to the hospital. We send a team to the 7-0 precinct to secure it and, uh, and freeze the, the bathroom. We send people to Club Rendezvous to try to get as much information as possible. And our investigation is off and running on Sunday, Sunday night. Monday morning, I get all this information. Number one, they, they called me at home to tell me all this information. And I said to them, you have the resources you need. What else could I send you? What could I give you? And we're off and running. I get to the police commissioner. His name was Howard Safer at the time. I get to him first thing Monday morning. And I start to lay out our investigation for him. And he's looking at me saying, do you believe this really happened? Because nobody wanted to believe that a man would do this to another man. A human being would do this to another human being. And worst of all, a cop would do this to another human being. And then to compound that it happened in a police station. And people didn't want to believe it. I didn't want to believe it, but the evidence was so overwhelming. So by Monday morning, we've identified who, work, who was working that night. We brought photo arrays to the hospital. We had Mr. Luima pick out the officers that were there, who hit him, who put him in the car. We, we had this investigation in full steam by Monday afternoon. Monday afternoon, uh, I'm called down to City Hall to brief the mayor, Mayor Giuliani. 
and I brief him on the case, and I'm giving him the facts and the circumstances. And as the true prosecutor he was, you got to remember, Rudy Giuliani was a United States attorney uh, for the Southern District of New York. He's asking pertinent questions, and I have to be, be honest, we had the answers because our investigation was solid up to that point. We were working with the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office, and the press doesn't get this until Wednesday, and they start asking questions. Now, naturally, the nature of internal affairs work, I can't reveal my investigation to them. Yep. So they keep saying, well, what are you doing, police department? What are you doing, internal affairs? And when I said to them, don't worry, it's under investigation. But they wanted more. They wanted names and dates and facts and figures, which I could not give them because I'm working with prosecutors. And what prosecutor wants his or her case in the newspaper before they get a chance to bring it before a grand jury? Yep. Well, the good news is within two weeks, we had five indictments. Now, if you know the criminal justice system, to get people indicted in two weeks, to get five police officers indicted in two weeks, that's a pretty quick time period. That's, that's, a, that's a monumental task, and we did it. Well, Charles, you did it respecting the in- presumption of innocence of the cops, which we have to always respect. Uh, but, Everybody is innocent until proven guilty. Everybody. Right. And sometimes Citizens, we see, Charles, sometimes we see a prosecutor go in and get an indictment before there's any investigation. And, and that's the dynamic tension between internal affairs and the media. And the media wants, and, and the masses, well, they want a prosecution or they want an indictment immediately. They want but, an execution Well, they today. want an execution. And your job is to get to the truth. And this is why it's so important for internal affairs to have integrity for internal affairs to have the kind of people, the quality people that can protect the very brand and image of the department by so seeking out truth that they're willing to get that bad cop and prosecute him, but only if he's violated the law. And we went step by step. And I tell you what was great about this case. We always hear about the blue wall of silence. Well, in this particular case, once some of the facts became known, once the officers in the 7-0 precinct realized that this really happened, they came forward, and they provided the critical information that we needed to get the indictment in two weeks. We had an officer who started to put things together. He saw Volpe and, um, and Mr. Luima walking into the, into, towards the bathroom area. He saw Luima with a stick in his hand, and he says, wait a minute, this might have happened. He calls us and says, I have information, and I want to talk to you guys right now. Now, we're talking about you know, 2 o'clock in the morning. So we get a team together, and we rush the team over to, to, to him, and he starts giving us a piece of information. Then another cop comes forward with a piece of information, and our case starts to build real quickly and real solid. So the blue wall of silence, if there is such a thing, and I can attest that there is, but I'll talk about that in a second, it crumbles in this case because it was so horrendous that people in the precinct, other police officers, said, this can't happen. We can't stand by and let this happen. So very, very encouraged by the officers coming forward in that case. And by the way, it was remarkable. The the right things happened. Uh, People were prosecuted. They were thrown in prison like they should have. And ultimately, Abner Luina was, well, not made whole because you can't be made whole after something like this. But there were civil fines 
and the Louima family was compensated for their damages. I can't imagine what that man went through, and he received compensation, and Justin Volpe is serving a 30-year sentence in a federal penitentiary, I believe, in Minnesota. And that's what justice looks like and needs to look like always for all. And by the way, equal justice under the law, that's the, that's the game for the cops, equal justice for the citizens, equal justice. And let, talk about that blue wall of silence in our final minutes together. Um, because it's it's there, uh, but how is it different than it was back in the day? Well, I'll tell you, everybody knows of, the, knows of the blue wall of silence, but my question is, what makes people think that a wall of silence exists only within the policing community, which it does, but it exists in every occupation and every group. There is, we had a case that we investigated, there was two firefighters in a fire station get into a fight. One of them hits the other with a folding chair, serious injury. The fire department, which also handles EMS, picks the man up and rushes him to the hospital. They say he fell off of a ladder while he was fixing something. They quick clean up the the crime scene. They take all the blood. They throw the chair away. They do all of this stuff. So would we call that a red wall of silence because they covered up for their own? In the medical profession, very rarely do you see doctors testifying against other doctors. And we've had cases where Doctors have botched surgeries, and the other people in the operating room never came forward. So could we call that the white wall of silence? In, in occupations, especially occupations where you rely on the other person for safety and for your very life, there tends to be a wall of silence. Is there a blue wall of silence? Yes, but it is not just in the police profession. It is in all professions. Now you'd see it in the military, too, in combat. You'd see this, by the way, when the, when, the, when the Armstrong, Lance Armstrong doping thing happened in bicycling, the doping in baseball. Well, it turned out there was a lot more of it than people cared to admit because, A, no one wanted to snitch, and, B, a lot more people were doing it than cared to admit. Absolutely. And, and these are things that happen because human beings are flawed, and that's just the nature of any occupation and, frankly, any walk of life. Our human beings are flawed. Uh, tell me one last misconception people might have about not only the life in internal affairs, but the life and the daily life of particularly a big city cop. See, cops don't come to work with, every day with the idea of hurting people. So to some people, they think that these cops, all they want to do is abuse people's rights. They want to hurt people. They're racist. They're prejudiced. Cops don't come to work to hurt people. Sometimes there are situations where, where people are injured and people are hurt. In internal affairs, internal affairs investigators are not there to hurt good cops. And that's the, the impression we get mainly because of in the movies and in television, internal affairs is always the, the outsider, the cop who is uh, uh, trying to hurt the hero or heroine from doing a, a good job. Yep. They're trying to prevent Dirty Harry from getting those bad guys off the street, and they want to stop the cops who are, who are uh, uh, dragging in the drug dealers. That's not the case. We, we're police officers. We're there to support good cops, to help good cops, but we're there primarily to make sure that the bad cops don't get away with it and they don't tarnish the reputation and steal the headlines away from the good cops. Well, we've been talking to Charles Campisi, who is the chief of NYPD's Internal Affairs Bureau, the biggest internal affairs bureau in the country, representing and doing work with and for the biggest police force in the country, with at the time, at one point in time, 41,000 cops, over 50,000 
in total. And that's bigger than, well, many towns in America. And when you have that many people, you're going to have to police some of the bad guys. Charles Campisi's book, Blue on Blue, An Insider's Story of Good Cops Catching Bad Cops, is a must-read. We don't do a lot of books on our American stories, but when we do them, we know you'll love them. And Charles, thanks for the storytelling, and thanks for telling this story for all the cops, particularly the good cops, Charles, as you said, the overwhelming majority that you serve. Well, thank you so very much. It was my pleasure to be, and I, I hope uh, uh, we added to uh, some of the changes that we need. You bet. And thanks again. That's Charles Campisi, Blue on Blue, an insider's story of good cops catching bad cops. Go to Amazon.com and get it now. Charles Campisi's story here on Our American Stories.